want to repeat, like I do every week, the conversation is a positive information to help you. No agenda, but a talk to help players and families grow in our great game. This form of baseball talk and sharing philosophies and beliefs is for you, the player, the family member, the youth, high school, college coaches, a forum for all of us to grow as people and coaches, mentors. Tonight, we are lucky to have ex-MLB catcher and now Illinois State head coach Steve Holmes. As you will find out within this hour, Coach Holmes has an engaging personality and demeanor. He's a winning person through and through. He has not been handed anything in his life, but gaining his position in our baseball world because of his ability as a coach, but as a communicator as well as hard worker. After playing in the Giants and Minnesota Twins organization, Holmes became an assistant coach at Cal State University, Sacramento from 2013 to 2016. And I want to say he went to Purdue and worked for Waz for a year from 2017 to 2018. And then he became the head coach at Illinois State University in 2019 to the present time. Athlete 911 and mentors of baseball welcome Steve Holm, head coach of Illinois State University. Welcome, Steve. How are you doing? Doing great. How good. about you? I'm good. I'm. It's we we had a little chilly spell here. It was high of 22 today, so it's supposed to warm back up during the week. And being from California, I like it warmer than I like it cold. Looking forward <laughs> to that. Let's start there before we start talking about your background as a coach and stuff. How do you, as you grew up in Northern California, how do you deal with the weather and how does your program deal with the weather when, you know, these guys out here in the sunshine are out practicing, going full speed, and you're dealing with the weather you're just talking about? We do a lot of things when we start in the fall. We we talk about we'll do outside stuff when we're outside and we're going to do inside stuff when we're inside. So in the fall, like we don't do a lot of what you would call team defensive stuff. There's not bunt coverages or anything like that. When we're outside, we take advantage of being outside and and we'll do everything we can to that needs to be done while you're outside. Because once you get in the gym, you you have plenty of time to, to knock that stuff out. I think that's one of the ways that we deal with it is, is trying to be outside when you can be outside. So then like coming up now, we're just about, what a week and a half away from being able to get into your full team practice with NCAA hour stuff. And at that point, that's when you're going to really hone in on some of those bun defenses, first and thirds and stuff like that. So at the end of the fall, we're probably not as prepped on that kind of stuff as we would be if we were outside. We got to do what we got to do, you know, when you're in this climate. Got you. So let's start with your your playing background and your coaching background can you so everybody gets a feel for you and where you've been in baseball can you start with that yeah so I played shortstop in McClatchy High School got drafted out of high school my my senior year as a as an infielder back when they did that the draft and follow thing we had a really good team my my junior year had a guy named Mick Johnson on that team that kind of put me on the radar because he was the guy that was going to bring the scouts himself I got to play in that shadow a little bit and made a little bit of a name for myself going into my senior year. And then I played uh, at American River Junior College 
and left there, went to Oral Roberts, played two years there for Sonny Galloway. And the guy who recruited me was named Rob Walton, who's now at Oklahoma State. Played for those two guys. And then I got Todd Thomas, drafted me out of Oral Roberts as a uh, catcher, even though I'd never caught really. So I went into pro ball and Dick Kidrow, who passed away earlier, probably a couple months ago, he thought I could do it for some reason. And, you know, I, I did too until I actually got back there. And I got back there and started trying to catch and pretty much just learned who the people are in the front row behind the home plate because I, I chased more balls off the backstop than I probably wanted to. And I would say it took me about three years of, of actually learning the craft to where I, I felt comfortable enough to, to where I was probably what you'd call an adequate player. And luckily for me, Tidro liked me and he kind of kept giving me that opportunity, even though I, I had no business catching early on. And I ended up getting a chance two different years where I played for a guy named Lenny Sakata. It was in San Jose. That was the Giants high A team at that point. And Lenny was one of those guys that he backed up Cal Ripken. Obviously, not a lot of playing time for him. And he talked to me one day and he's, if you ever make it, it's going to be as a backup. And it's a little bit of a, you think a slap in the face to you at that point, but you're just, he's just being honest with you. And he's like, if you're going to make it as a backup, because I'm going to teach you to hit like a backup. And so with that, we, you know, we simplified some things in the swing and he's like, Hey, if you're going to play once every four or five days, you know, I'm going to teach you how to do that. And, and I, I learned from him and it was that in 2006 is when he really instilled that in me. And then 2008, I made the opening day roster in the big leagues and, Went up and down for a couple more years and played till I was 32 years old. I was 2012, and I I was actually still playing. And I got a phone call from a friend of mine who knew Reggie Christensen, who was the head coach of Sac State. And he said, "Hey, they have a coaching opening. Are, are you interested?" And I, you know, I'm still playing in AAA at that point, and I'm thinking, as a catcher in AAA, a foul tip away, you go back up and. So I, I talked to Reggie that night, and I told him I was interested, and I want to see how the end of the year played out and stuff like that. And then three days later, they called me in, and you know they released me, and I I walked out, and you know I, I looked up to the sky, and I go, wow, well, you know, maybe, maybe some of these these stars are aligning per se. Anyway, I, I flew home, I called him, and I said, hey, I might be a little bit more interested in that job than I was three days ago. Um, so we set up lunch, we we went and met, and I took the job and. Got to start out coaching right there in my hometown and lived in a house that I had bought when I was playing and had, had obviously never really lived in. And I got to learn the craft of college coaching from a really good guy that really understood. And we had some good players. I, I was really lucky. I walked in. We had a guy named Reese Hoskins playing first base. I was the hitting coach at that point. And I walked into a great situation. We won a lot of games and had, had some really good times. But ultimately, my wife was from or is from St. Louis and we were really looking to get back to this area so we could be, you know, closer to her family when we started having children. And you know, that's when the Purdue job opened up and, you know, I, I had a bunch of people call Waz. I did not know who he was. And fortunately for me, he took a chance on some guy he didn't know. And we went there and we got that thing turned around pretty quick and a lot faster than most people thought was going to happen. And we were able to parlay that, that into this thing. After two years at Purdue, we came here, and likewise, again, we, we walked into – there were some 
pretty good players on the roster, and we had a lot of success early. So that's kind of how I got where I'm at. It's a good story. Let me let's start with now you're you go from the field and now you're a coach and you go right from the field to coaching. What was the transition for you being off? The, were you really ready to stop being a ball player and now you're a coach? What was it like being thrown into that fire? The ready to stop playing. I was, I, I had torn my groin the year before with the Minnesota twins and I, I, I wasn't as good of a player as I was, you know, before that. And I knew it, it was one of those things that as you're playing, when your time's up and at that point you're on borrowed time and I had gotten that phone call you know, from Reggie and it was like, you, know, you just felt the right thing happens at the right place and the right time. And it was one of those, I, as he, as I got off the phone with him that night, I was like, geez, this sounds like it's too good to be true. I was not going to quit. I knew that. And then they kind of took the uniform off me three days later. I was completely ready to to hang it up and, and go that route. Coaching, I got lucky. Reggie brought me in that year, and he told me that he wanted some help on the pitching side, and that was one thing that even when I was playing with – I bought, backed up Benji Molina when I was with the Giants, and we used to always talk like, gosh, we thought we could have you know helped out on – been a pitching coach later on in our careers or whatever. And so I was like, yeah, yeah I could help you out there. And I was doing the hitting, and then you know, I was helping on the pitching. And Reggie was – great he just said just go wherever you want to go if you think you need to fix this go fix it and and he gave me free reign and I didn't know a damn thing about the actual administration side of college coaching but I at that point I'd I'd seen enough baseball that I could probably help out on the baseball field so anyway he he slowly eased me into the the admin side there's obviously still some things that aren't my favorite things to do with the computer but the coaching side w- was fun. It was easy. It was great to work with the kids at because college baseball is not as much of a business as, as pro ball. And it was great to just get back with the kids that just love the game again. And there was not the business aspect of it. And that part was probably so refreshing after playing for 12 years of and, and being in that business side of it. Bruce Bochy said, you know, of you that, you made the major leagues because you knew how to handle pitchers and pitchers like to throw to you. When, now that you're a college coach, do you, are you a mechanics coach? Are you a mental coach? What, where do you feel that your strengths lie? I, I would say that having the catcher background, because I started out doing, obviously as a pitching coach at Purdue and stuff, I think I realized that there's more than one way to skin a cat. As a catcher, you got, 12, 13, 14 pitchers that you're working with, and they're all different. Those Giants teams that we were on, you had Lincecum, he's winning the Cy Young. You got Matt Cain. You got Barry Zito, who's, you know, flashing the breaking ball. But then you got Wilson. You got Romo. You got all these different types of guys, and they can all get outs, but they all got to do it in a different way. And I think that's the thing that that helped me so much so early on in my career as a coach was I don't think you could ever come to our, our Sac State or Purdue teams and look at our pitchers and say, wow, they all look the same. There's plenty of programs around that you go watch and you're like, I I can tell what they're all doing. And I thought that we gave our guys that opportunity to just be themselves. And that, that came from ultimately from that catcher background of being able to do that. But on the mechanics side, you were able to blend a little bit of that because that ultimately is 
what everyone, all those guys were doing. They were all doing the same type of thing, but they were doing it differently. I, I think with that aspect, that's probably the best answer I can provide is knowing that there's a hundred different ways that the body moves and, and the body needs to move differently for different people. I, I think that was a, a well-rounded background I got, you know, with the Giants, you had Dick Tidrow, you had Burt Bradley, and, and, and once you get the big leagues, you got Rigetti and Gardner. And those guys, they produced some unbelievable arms in that stretch where I was with the Giants. And I, I was a backup catcher in the minor leagues, too, so that means you're in a lot of bullpens. And I just sat there and, and listened, and early on, I probably should have listened to even more, but when I got halfway through that career, I started realizing like I'm probably not going to be on one of those $50 million deals. I better start paying attention here. So I listened to Dick Tidrow and, and Burt Bradley and we had Bob Stanley and all those guys are given great pitching tech tips and stuff like that. And I just soaked them up. And, and when it became my time to give back to the game, I tried to throw the same stuff back at our guys. Okay. That's you listen, you learn, right? My next question for you is this: We, ha- we, there's this show is for kids and their families. You played many positions. You started out as a shortstop, so you probably were very athletic. I probably saw you play since I saw Nick Johnson play a lot. Sorry you probably put NP by me. Sorry, I didn't recognize you. Yeah, non-prospect. <laughs> but there's a lot of kids on here, and. Look, you were a backup in the big leagues. You played for two different teams. And there's kids on here that probably don't play all the time. What is some information that you can tell them that they can be doing if they're not getting to play full time? I think you have to realize who you are and be honest with that. I wanted to be Troy Tulowitzki, too. I wanted to play shortstop, hitting the three-hole, and and hit 35 homers. That would have been awesome. But that wasn't that wasn't who I was supposed to be. I didn't have that kind of DNA. I did not have that kind of skill set. And I think you have to realize and you have to accept the fact that your coaches are trying to win. They're, they're not putting Troy Tulowitzki on the bench. They're putting guys like myself on the bench. But ultimately, you have to understand who you are at that time. That doesn't mean that you're pigeonholed and that's who you're going to be next year, especially if you're a young kid, because you guys, those kids are still growing and they gain muscle at different ages. But ultimately, be honest with yourself. Understand where you best fit. That gives you a chance to come off the bench and be a good player. Because if you don't want to do it, then you're never going to be good at it. But you have to understand this is the situation I'm, I'm in. These are the cards that I'm dealt. I'm going to play these cards as well as I can. But if you sit there and constantly wish you had different cards, you'll never be good. You won't be worried about the cards that you got and playing those well, if that makes sense. So ultimately, it really just comes down to you understanding your situation and then being really good at that situation. That means you got to get extra reps in. That means you got to go if if you're an offensive guy, you got to go down while the starters warming up and ask him, "Hey, can I stand in for your last 10 pitches?" Those are 10 more pitches that you're going to get to see when that manager might put you in in the 7th inning, you're going to get a chance to pinch hit. You've already seen 10 pitches two and a half hours ago. The, the, that might be the the most value you have all day. It might be value that you're giving the pitcher a chance to, he hones in 
before the game starts and he gets a chance to throw to a hitter standing in there, he might not walk the first guy. That might end up becoming the game. And you never know the value that you're going to provide that night. It might be simply standing there helping the starter. But I, I think that that's the, the key is to understand who you are and your and what role you have. That's, that's great stuff. When you're – how would you – when you're – when you like a player, when you're recruiting a player, what are the things that you're looking for? Do, are you, do you guys lean JC? Do you lean high school? Do you lean Midwest, East, West? What, where do you guys want to go for your recruiting and what are you looking for? So these kids that are on here tonight know what a guy that could play for you possibly. I think you go where you, you trust people. We all have, programs, coaches, whatever, that call you and, hey, I'm going to send you this guy or that guy. This guy needs to be on your radar. And there's certain ones that never let you down. They tell you, hey, this is who this guy is. He shows up. He's that guy. And they also understand who plays well for you. Because who plays well for me doesn't mean he doesn't play terrible for the guy down the street and vice versa. There's some guys that We've had where people are like, how did you get that much out of that guy? And there's things where guys have come to us and then they've left and they've gone somewhere else and they do a lot better. And I, I think that that part is what you're trying to figure out is who plays well for you because that, that's vitally important. And some of those guys that we trust, that we know, we know how they are developed when they grow as, as they're growing up. And we can ask those guys certain questions that, that we know are vital for us. Hey, how does he react in this situation? What about this? What does he do here? And and they give us the honest answers. And that's the most important thing because we really don't care where the player comes from. Ultimately, you've got to be good in your own backyard. And we do very well in Chicago. We do very well in Wisconsin, if you look at our roster. But we ventured out to California. We, we got some guys that we trust out in California, and they've sent us some guys and Obviously, during the pandemic, you had to get guys sight unseen. And some of those guys have turned out to be really good players for us. And I, I think that it, it comes down to the trust part. There's some guys out there in this world that have been doing it a lot longer than me. And you, you, you have to realize that you know, they're, they're probably pretty good at their job if that's what they're doing. And trust them when they say well, you, you should take a chance on the guy. Because we go see a kid. We only get a chance to see him one, two, maybe three times by the time we're having to pull the trigger. These other guys that we're leaning on, they, they know the kid. I think that's vital is having those relationships out there, people you can trust, and those people also know what, what works for you. When you are recruiting a player and the coaches, you, know, you listen to Twitter, you listen to all these other coaches talking, and makeup always comes up, and makeup is important. What are – what – do you look for in makeup with a player? So if you were to bring your son to us and we're going to sit on a you know, recruiting trip, we're going to sit down and up in the stadium and you can look out over the field and I got a dry erase board in there and our guys have seen this thing and they're probably tired of it. And there's a few of them that are listening right now. And they're probably going to hit mute because they don't want to hear it again, but we got a pie. We got, we got four pieces to our pie and this pie is what makes or breaks it for a player to play for us and other programs might have a different kind of pie but ultimately pillars whatever you want to call it these four slices are what make it 
or break it. One's baseball, two's academics, three's the strength and conditioning, and the last one is we we always tell our players you'll never hear us say we want good teammates. We all only want good people. Being a good teammate is easy for a good person. You, if you're a bad person and you're trying to be a good teammate, eventually it's going to come out, right? So those four pieces, that's what we're looking for. And what we want is you not to underachieve in any of those pieces. If you're a 3.1 student, then you give us a 3-2. If you're not the strongest guy on the team, go in there and work your butt off and make us think that you're trying to be the strongest guy on the team. Same thing with baseball. Everyone shows up, they want to give a good effort in baseball. But do you have the good attitude day in and day out? Even if things aren't going your way, show up and give us that effort. And then on the good person side, that's, that is, you can't trick us. Like at a certain point, we get to know you. But ultimately, if we have guys that are overachieving in those four things, then we're really good. When you overachieve in all aspects of your life, you have great makeup. That's what makeup is. Makeup is somebody who shows up on a daily basis and gives you their best effort. If we're asking you to get a 3.2, but you're really a 2.9 student, there's no way you can do it without giving us that effort, that best effort day by day. That's the only way you can get a 3.2 if you're really a 2.9 student. And we don't care what kind of students they are. We just ask them not to underachieve. So ultimately, that's that. that would be my definition of makeup, is somebody that, overachieves in what he does and never underachieves. And it doesn't matter what it is. I don't care if it's ping pong. Be overachieving ping pong, even if you suck, but still give us the best effort. Awesome. How many, how many guys, obviously we're all fooled sometimes. How many guys have fooled you since you've been a coach? A lot. I think it's hard on the recruiting side because you don't get to know them. And, and there's the bad part of our, our sport right now with recruiting is it, it happens too early. Everybody knows that everyone agrees. They just don't know a good solution. And with that, people don't, you don't get the proper time to really get to know people and the kids and the families, how the families function. Like a lot of times people are offering before they even get on campus or it's even legal for them to get on campus. You're trying to figure out that information as fast as you can and early as possible. But even what, like when it comes to families, we got a list of occupations for parents that that tend to make the kid better for us, if that makes sense. So, like, we know what the, the kid's parents do. And there's certain occupations where, like, we've had four or five of these and it never works out. And we we start to walk away. And then there's, you know, like, like farmers kids, for example, have always been very good to us. Farmers, they, they plant that seed in April. They got to tend to that crop. They probably don't get paid until October, November for all, all that hard work they did. That's a lot like our season. Our fall starts in August. We really don't see the, the fruits of our labor until June when you're in first place or you're in sixth place. But that whole idea of delayed gratification, farmers' kids have been great for us because they understand that from a very young age. So it, it's just there's a lot to that onion, and we've been tricked before, but we try like crazy not to get tricked as much as you did, you know, the year before. 
there's a lot to it. And a lot of times it, it comes from way before you ever get them. So there's 18 years that, you know, they've been raised before you ever get them. And that, that part, you can't really change that. We have, you know, as I've said a million times here, you got a lot of kids on here and this is all about an agenda for kids. Can you go into what for these kids so they know, so when people are watching them, what are positives that you want to see and what are negatives that are like an incredible turnoff to you about a player or a family? Positives? I love when the kid smiles on the field. I, I believe that the kids that are playing now play with more stress and more pressure than my generation ever played. We did not if, – if I went 0 for 4 in a high school game, the only thing that the box score in the back then the Sacramento Bee put in is who pitched, who had a couple – if you had two or more hits and the score. You didn't know – Steve Holm went 0 for 4. And now it's all on Twitter and it's all of that. And it's everywhere. And it's more pressure than an average 16-year-old kid really needs. 15-year-old can go to a game now. And I've been at some of these events. There's 85 radar guns up on him. He's throwing 83 miles an hour. And that's a lot of pressure to him. And that's why you just like to see the kids who are smiling. Because you get a lot of kids get caught up in all this stuff that the recruiting and all that. Ultimately, when you get to college, it's hard. College baseball is really hard. We don't really miss on the skill set very often. So everybody has a similar skill set. It's who enjoys the work that makes them better. Because there's a lot of extra work you're going to have to do if you think you're going to take a 21-year-old's job when you're 18. Smiling on the field is probably one of the bigger things for me because you, can, you can't trick me with a smile. You can't half-ass a smile. I know what a real smile looks like. And the kids who are enjoying themselves on the field, those are the ones you want to recruit. Now, uh, turnoffs are the same things that we've all read those things, the t- top 10 things parents don't do to your kid. One of the things that bothers me is when we bring a family in, they start talking and okay, where are you going to play in the summer or whatever? And they're like, and the mom and dad say, we are going to play on whatever team. And I'm like, you're 40 years old. You ain't playing nothing. Your son is going to play. We like, I don't play anymore. Our guys play, but that's one thing where it just feels like, you know, maybe there's probably some over-involvement there and it, the best parents sit there they bring their kids on the trip and they just sit back and they listen. They don't let their kid make a mistake. They're there to throw them a life raft, but it's about the kid. When it's about the kid, it's, it's usually a good situation for us. Okay, let's go into some offensive stuff here. When you're out watching player and you're trying to decide the guys, that the smiling faces that you want in your program. Yeah. What are you, what's your expectation level and what are you looking for in hitters when you're out there recruiting them? Our ballpark is a big park. Uh, you have to be a grown man if you think you're going to hit it out of that thing, especially in the spring. So we're looking for guys that can keep the ball low unless they're extremely physical. We, we want guys that can hit 300. And I don't think you can hit 300 by being 175 pounds and hitting fly balls in a, in a pitcher's park. 
So that that's one thing we're looking for. We're also looking for guys who are really developed from the elbow down. That is a sure tail sign of someone who's going to have some bat speed and and has to have a little top hand to be able to get to the better velocity as they climb. That's basically forearm strength. You look at the best hitters in the game, they always want to break down swings and all this stuff. Just look at them from the elbow down. But when you were scouting, I guarantee that was that's an old school tool that people don't talk about very often, but it's it's real. Elbow down strength from your elbow to your wrist, that will tell you how good of a hitter that guy is probably going to be. That's that it's easy, it's simple, it's probably not as complex of an answer as as people want, but that really is we're looking for. Okay, when you're out and you're recruiting pitching, obviously analytics has become a huge part of our game and is used to help players grow. What are the things when you go out and watch a pitcher that how you're projecting projectability? What are the things you're looking for? So these kids, what I'm trying to ask you is, is what do these kids need to be doing out there that will make a college coach look at them and like what they're doing and say, hey, this guy's not a finished product. There's more in here. What are some of the skills and tools that are projectable for you to maybe go on that kid? I, I think it changes as as you as you have a different job. So when I was at Sac State, the type of pitcher we were getting was not what I, I was able to get when I was at Purdue. With Purdue and th- that stadium and that education, we were able to get in on a little bit different guy. And then here, we're, we're getting a, a, a very similar arm that the Big Ten's getting. So I think it's based upon your coach's skill set a little bit too. So when I was doing the pitching, I knew there's certain things that I could really teach and there was things that I struggled with. I was not great as a pitching coach of teaching a kid to spin the baseball. If he didn't spin it by the time he got to me, he wasn't going to spin it a whole lot better very often. And so that was one thing that I had to find was, could he be a changeup guy if he's left-handed or are we just going to have to go find some spin here? Because I'm, I'm not going to be able to teach him that spin, but the mechanical side that we were, I always looked for was I would stand right behind the pitcher behind on plate from the catcher's point of view, which was, you know, where I spent 12 years. And I want, if he's right-handed, I wanted to see the arm come out of the glove and go back towards second base. I did not like to see it come out and go towards the first baseman, if if that makes sense. When I got to see that whole arm, that was something that it just – there was too much directional issue for me, and I just – it was not something that I was ever go- fixed as a pitching coach, and we just continued to struggle at it. And the reason why I think when they that arm comes out and it goes back towards the center fielder or the second base, whatever you want to call it, I think they, they can repeat that. And the more often you repeat, the better you get at doing it. And then the velocity climbs a little bit more. But the guys that really fought direction, we really struggled with those guys. And they constantly were changing their direction because it, it just wasn't the right way. You're kind of Your arm's going towards the third base dugout and you've got to throw it towards home plate. Those guys, we never gained velocity with them either because basically you know, we just couldn't ever repeat and get them into the right spot so that's what i was looking for is can i can that arm move back and basically be more north and south 
and then some of there's a, there's a lot more body things and those things are all over Twitter. Is the guy flexible and can get to the front side and some of those things like that. So you don't like multi-directional arm guys. You want straight take backs where maybe yeah. the guys are hidden a little bit better and it's just more in line with Yeah, it's, it's just more repeatable. You know, like, like I played with Bumgarner and he's unbelievable. Like, you know, having direction basically is he's doing what I'm saying I wouldn't want to recruit. I would recruit Bumgarner, by the way. But ultimately, <laughs> that it takes a strong human being to be able to do that. And that's Madison Bumgarner is probably one of the stronger pitchers to ever step on a major league mound. But that, that was the piece that when guys do that and they get that stretched out, go in the wrong direction. I don't think it's very healthy in Bumgarner hasn't held his velocity throughout his career. People thought he might early on and that direction has probably contributed to that. Now, give him credit he's reinvented himself and he's learned how to pitch with different stuff at this point which is fantastic but ultimately in your college team you got to keep those guys healthy you lose your best arm you you just start looking at next year sometimes and so that is also a big part of it because we don't have triple a you can't just call up a guy you can't make trades like you can in the big leagues so with that keeping guys healthy obviously is huge too and i i don't think the multi-directional guys are going to stay healthy as often Gotcha. Now, do you analytics has become a huge part of of baseball, and it's a tool used to help guys improve their skills. How much do you guys use analytics in your recruiting process and what you're doing at your school? Can you tell us a level of what you're doing with analytics? We have TrackMan installed in our stadium. We have Rev Soto, we have all those things. We use it, but we don't abuse it. I, I think our kids are sometimes we take it away because they get they start wanting to compete against that as opposed to competing against the game. And then sometimes it's there for certain guys that, that it, it helps. I don't think it's great for everybody. I think it's um, one of those deals that you can easily fall in love with it and start worrying about your spin rate and not understand where the pitch is going. Yes and no, I think it's, it's a balanced deal. I, I think it's something that essentially guys like when I was playing, Bruce Bochy, Mike Socia, those were the best managers in the game. Those guys already knew what analytics were. They just didn't have fancy terms for it. They knew when a guy had good spin rate, they called it life. He has late life on his fastball. They didn't care what the velocity was because they knew he had this late life. And now they, they basically have taken a computer and, and put data to it so that somebody who doesn't have the luxury of Bruce Boshi and Mike Socia's eyes can understand how 88 can beat you and 90 can't at times. So with that, we use it a little bit, and, and sometimes you need to use it more with certain guys that have grown up with it in order to help them make the adjustment. You can tell them, hey, this is what you should do, but here's why. And then they're, they have belief behind what they're doing. And that's sometimes, and which back when in the 80s, you didn't have to do that. You just believed your coach. He said to, to do something, you did it. And now there's a lot more data, and you have to use that data with this generation to, to prove it to them, if that makes sense. So if that's who the particular individual is, 
it doesn't bother us. We just have to understand that that's who they are and they need to see the data before they're completely believing that adjustment that needs to be made. That's good stuff. Uh, great stuff. How do you motiv- motivate and inspire excellence in your players? I, I think you know, when we talk about the pie, I, I do believe that I, I was a mid-major player who played shortstop, who somehow found his way to the big leagues. And that pie that I kind of grade my players out on, I would have been really good at it as well. And, and there, there's that saying, it is, it, it's of no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. So I think that, I think our guys can understand that I'm with them. You know, like I, I, I bust their, their tail on working out, getting their bodies into better shape. We show them like, look at what the guys on TV look like. You don't look like that yet. That doesn't mean you're not going to, but we, we need a lot of effort out of you. But at the same time, I was up that morning on my Peloton busting my butt at 5 a.m. You got to be able to walk the walk if you're going to ask him to do all that, those things. So I think that motivation, it's more of a, a lead by, by example, I guess, if that's the right way of putting it. But you know, sometimes we, as a former catcher, you know that you got 12 different pitchers and some guys you got to come and talk them down and some guys you got to pat them on the butt and some guys you got to yell at them. And as a head coach, I think in today's society, you get about two times a year that you can really jump them. And after that, it just doesn't work anymore. That, you got two of those, once in the fall and once in the season. (laughs) And after that, you probably are going to get tuned out. So you better find a a different way of motivating because the 1980s style that I grew up playing, those days are gone. So you have to get to know the guys if you're going to motivate them. One of the things that we did this fall. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead, please. So one of the things we did this fall, we we played a – you get those fall games, you get two games you can play outside competition. So we went over and we played Xavier. And we took our guys and we stayed at the Great Wolf Lodge, the water park place. And so we – after the game, we played Xavier and we go to this water park after the game. And they had a blast. But ultimately, I got to see them be kids. Like, like we're talking about smiling on a baseball field. You take 35, 18 to 22-year-olds and throw them in a water park, you see a lot of smiles. But I don't think you can motivate your guys without getting to know them. And that's what we really try to do extremely well. Every Wednesday in the fall, a group of three or four of the new players come to our house. They eat dinner with me, my wife, our our two daughters, our daughters bring the desserts out to them. But we sit there and sometimes we'd sit there for two hours after dinner and you're just getting to know them. We're not talking about baseball. Baseball is hardly ever brought up. It's where are you from? You got brothers, sisters. What are they doing right now? Do you miss high school? All all of those things. And I think that's the only way you're ever going to get to really motivate them is by getting to really know who they are. Can you talk about in-box competitiveness as a hitter? Like just literally in, in, in the box? Yeah, like you're in the box. You're hitting in deep in a game in an accountability moment. What are the things you're looking for in a competitive hitter? I, I think the guys that can really – that are really competitive, A, they know their swing, and B, they know what the guy on the mound is going to do. I faced Trevor Hoffman one night, and – 
coach had managed Hoffman for however many years with San Diego. And I asked him, I go, Hey, they, we were down by a couple runs. And I go, do you want me to take a pitch here? And he looks at me, he goes, you think you can hit his changeup? And I go, probably not. He goes, then I wouldn't take a pitch. <laughs> I said, I got you. So I think you have to be able to understand what that guy can do on the mound too. Cause you're, you're, you just mentioned late in the game, you're probably facing their closer. If it's a competitive at bat, if the guy's a legitimate closer, he's got some sort of pitch that he's proven throughout that season that other college hitters aren't hitting either. So the really competitive guy understands, okay, I'm competitive, but that pitch might be a little bit better than my swing. I need to understand how not to let him get to that pitch and go up there. And they try not to ever get in that situation where the, the game's going to come down to that one slider. Don't let him get to it. And I think that's what from those competitive hitters is there's a plan and they understand what they can do, but they understand what the man on the mound can do. Cause sometimes he's got something that you ain't going to be very good at. When you talk about, your a pitching plan when you guys are are putting together your staff. What are the things that you're looking for in a starter type pitchers that can pitch for you as a starter? And what are the things you look for in guys that are going to be relievers, your short men, your closers? What are the components of those things on your staff? One of the things we talk about is, is as a staff is making sure you got your eight arms. Eight arms will throw about 90% of the innings on a college baseball team. Those, those top eight arms usually at our level are showing you nineties and better with some sort of off speed pitch. That's pretty hard to hit. And I'm not as concerned about getting the stuff into the right situation as I am the mentality. We always say we get those top eight arms and let the kids tell us where they fit it takes a special guy to pitch on friday nights you go into some of these parks and there's thousands of people there we open up at arkansas this year that place will probably have ten thousand people in it and you're gonna lock in against some of the best players in the country and it takes a special human to do that I'm not as worried about our stuff on that night as I am our mentality. Same thing with a closer. When I was at Sac State, we had this one particular arm. He got to play pro ball. I thought he was going to be an unbelievable closer. We put him in the game, and he just didn't have the mentality. Now, our other closer we had, we had a guy named Sutter McLaughlin. I think he had 17 saves his freshman year. He had the ideal mentality. Nothing rattled him. And so it's not just your stuff. I think you have to get the mentality in the role more than you do the stuff. I was at Purdue and we had a young man. He's now, he's one of, he's our director of pitching performance there, but he pitched for me for two years and he had a 36 consecutive inning scoreless inning streak his junior year, 27, his senior year, two-time All-American. He did not throw above 84 miles an hour, left-handed guy. He closed out games for us. He had a 79-mile-an-hour slider. Nothing ever got to him. The stuff he never should have been closing at a power five. But the mentality was so off the charts that it let him do it. And then obviously the command was pretty impeccable to be closing at 82, 83 miles an hour. But ultimately way more worried about mentality than we are 
getting the right stuff into the roles. Now, there's obviously certain things. Some guys, they're 91 miles an hour as a starter, and you can put them in the pin, and they become 95, 96 for a sprint of 25 pitches. It changes them, and then that usually changes the mentality a little bit too. But So you have to play with the guys and figure out how each arm reacts to different roles. Some guys can't bounce back, so you shoot them out of the bullpen one time on a Friday, and you don't have him the rest of the weekend. He's probably not going to be a valuable bullpen guy for you. You have to figure that stuff out, but ultimately the mentality is way more important than the stuff. Okay, that's fair. The NIL, name, image, likeness. What's your thoughts on players being paid in college baseball and advantages it 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 does give some that do have these type of players? I, I'm mixed on it. I, I Obviously, there's some advantages. We're more in the wait-and-see approach. I think most mid-majors are there. I think the Power Fives are pushing a little bit. They have the personnel to in the athletic departments to figure it out a lot more than some of the mid-majors where you're short-staffed. So you're going to sit on the sidelines and see who trips because people are going to trip on this thing. You're, you'll you'll read about coaches getting asked or over it because their said player was getting – $5,000 a month for something that he shouldn't have been doing. And so there's a lot of rules that are out there that you don't know what what's really going on and it's happening behind the scenes and then you know, the coaches are, are in trouble for it. That part, I think, is the wait-and-see approach for me. I think that it's great because we don't offer enough scholarships. 11.7, is, it's a joke. We, we bring in a lot more money than almost every other sport, but we're still handicapped with the 11-7. I think that's, it's great to be able to put some money back in their pockets and allow them to do those things. The part I don't really, I alluded to this a little bit earlier on when I came back to college to coach and I loved it because the game was more pure and it wasn't professional baseball and it wasn't a business. I think when these guys start getting paid, it starts becoming a business. And that's what I'm, that's where a little bit more of the wait-and-see approach is for me because when you start getting paid, people start firing people. Same gig, I mean, it's, it's a job then. And whether you like it or not, we all saw that tweet where that one of the NFL guys is offering a million dollars to go, to, I think it's the Oklahoma quarterback, to go be a quarterback at his you know alma mater or whatever. And that's serious money. And it, the game won't be pure if, if that's what's going on. And so ultimately we're all going to have to adjust and adapt. That's one of the pieces for me that I'm a little skeptical on how that's going to work because we do a pretty good job of not telling our guys who's on big scholarships and who's not, because that can rip a clubhouse apart in the big leagues making 50 million, but this guy's playing over him and all that. And that's what's great. That's the beauty of college baseball is you don't really have that. And then all of a sudden you're going to throw the nil in. What what happens when the Friday guy's getting two grand a month from the car dealer and the, the Sunday guy's getting 500 bucks, but he's out pitching him and he starts taking over the Friday job. And you know, I, I think you're going to throw a wrinkle into it with that. I, I just don't know how this is going to work, but it's going to be interesting to watch how it works. Yeah. I'll be, I think we're going to be on the sidelines for a little while checking out too. Yeah. So. You grew up on a combine. I know you're a combine guy. 
in rice fields and there's a lot of young kids that come out of those type of areas where you came out of. What advice would you give them as they're making their baseball walk? I, I you, you got to believe in yourself. Your inner speech, if, if that's in conflict with your desires, your inner speech will always win. So sometimes you get those kids from real small areas and people are always telling you that they're not going to make it or they put labels on them because labels come from other people and they definitely feel safer predicting what can't happen as opposed to what can happen. So you come from a small town, you're not as sought after, you're not on one of the rankings and all that stuff. You got to believe in yourself. You know, that's the one thing I was, I spent seven years in the minor leagues as a catcher. Lenny Sakata saved me. Without that guy, I never play in the big leagues. But through that, you know, that whole time, I had imagination that I would be able to play in the big leagues. Like wisdom, it takes you from point A to point B. But imagination takes you well beyond that. Wisdom would have said, I'm not going to play in the big leagues. You scouted me and you didn't even know who I was. So ultimately, and that, that happened all the way through the minor leagues, but you, you have to have that imagination. You have to be able to believe in yourself. And even though the cards that you're dealt today ain't, ain't the best cards in the, in the hand, but play those cards and just keep playing them and playing them. And pretty soon you'll be the last man standing and, and you're on, you're on the, the first baseline at Dodger Stadium on opening day when wisdom said I should not have made it. But the imagination allowed it to happen. That's great. Great advice. Let me ask you a question that you alluded to earlier. If it was a perfect world, because there, you, you talked about it, the players today have so much more stress and you can see it in the way they play. When, in your opinion, would be the best time for guys to be able to commit in that avenue of their walk start i think because of the draft in our sport it's different like we're the only one that's really drafting guys out of high school and then mlb so it does have to start earlier than it probably should but i think that that summer after their sophomore year at that point the the male that we're recruiting is usually starting to develop enough that you can start to see what he's going to be like physically by the time he gets to your program. I wish we could wait till their senior year because ultimately like our schools, if you're in state, it's about twenty, $24,000, whatever it is. And I, if I give you a 50,000, 50% scholarship, that is 12 grand a year. And that's a $50,000 decision. You're asking 15 year old to make. They don't understand the repercussions of 50 grand. They think that I get a 50 grand, $50,000 job out of high school. I pay off my loan my first year. They don't understand taxes and those things. So I, I think that you would love to have it their senior year, but with the draft, the way it is in our sport, I think you're going to have to have it probably that, you know, summer after their sophomore year. Okay. I th you know, a lot of guys, that's, I, that's a pretty stock answer. If as far as exposure goes for uh, most of these kids, wh where do you feel like they get the best exposure? Is it team camps? 
Is it going to PG, PBR, Future Stars? What, what are what would you recommend them to do to get exposure? At this point, I have a lot of my friends that I played with, and their their sons are coming up, and their sons are anywhere from ten to sixteen, seventeen years old. We 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 have signed a guy that I caught in the big leagues. We signed his son. He's coming in next year. Those guys have been calling me for the last couple of years and saying, "Hey." What do I do? My son, sometimes their son is first round status and sometimes they're D2 status and anywhere in between. And I tell him, I said, hey, get with your summer ball coach. Have him give you an honest opinion. When your son's not around, say, shoot me straight. Where should he go? What level? Is that Vanderbilt? Is that UCLA? Or is that D2? Is it a mid-major? And then when you figure out what that level really is, because ultimately your son needs to play, don't go sit on the bench. But when they find out what that level is, I said, go to the team camps, go to that school's prospect camp, get on the field with those coaches. I'm a lot different person sitting behind my desk on a recruiting visit than I am on the field. But ultimately the kid's going to have to play for me on the field. He better not be sitting behind my desk very often because that means he's usually in trouble once he gets to us. So ultimately, he needs to know me what I'm like on the field. You find that spot that, let's say you're a mid-major and you're on the West Coast, go pick out five or six schools, go to their camp, see what those coaches are like on the field. Does the head coach even coach you? Or is he just sitting around, walking around on his phone all the time? If he's doing that at the camp, he's probably doing that at practice. What are the coaches like? Are they good guys? Are they wanting to talk to you? Or are they just sitting there simply evaluating you and, and kicking you out? If they're the guys that are simply evaluating you, I bet that's what they do in the fall. I bet they got 75 guys that come in. They're just going to evaluate the best ones and boot out the rest. So you get a chance to understand what these coaches are like when you get on their field. That's I would spend way more money doing that with my own children than I would chasing the tournaments that you're alluding to. That's great information. I appreciate it. Okay, we got about five minutes here, Steve. And Rob, I know you have a question for Steve. If you want to turn your mic on and ask him the question, let's let it shoot. Rob, are you there? Okay, I guess maybe we'll forget that. <laughs> Sorry, Steve. I was going to try to let somebody ask you a question. When you talk about your school and they're in the Midwest what are you selling about your school and yourself to recruits I, I think if you come to our school you're getting the true college experience it's not a big city it's a it is a college town if you take the school out of our town there's there's not a whole lot left so with that the the that part of it, like we've recruited some guys from California. They love it. It The California schools tend to be obviously in major cities. You don't have that true college experience. I think that's part of the, the school that you're really selling. The other part is State Farm. One of one of their headquarters is, is here in our town. So the business school is, is A+. State Farm has built the uh, Hall of Business on our campus. So if you wanted to be a business major, you're getting a, a very good degree and you have those connections that you can jump into. On the baseball side, you're getting 
an extremely competitive league. It's a multi-bid league. We've been able to get two to three teams in in the last few rounds of of the NCAA selection show. So obviously the one who's winning the conference tournaments getting in, but then you're getting one or two more in out of an 18 league. The league is ultra competitive. And then with us, we're playing anybody. We open up this year. We have, we're opening up at Arkansas and we're playing as many of the big 10 teams as we can for midweeks. We have a really heavy schedule. We have heavy schedules coming up. I, I think that's what you're selling is you'll play anybody anytime. And then you're also, you have a really good education. Good. Okay. My last question for you tonight. And I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you taking an hour of your night and being here with everybody. We alluded to it, the stress for young players, because I, I see it like magnified in today's baseball world because of social media. What advice would you give the parents? I know I have a lot of parents on here tonight for my Athlete 911 group. What advice could you give our parents in their walk with their son and the advice you can give them to alleviate some of this stress? I would tell them, don't coach your son from the stands like we we live in a really small town here we live about 15 miles north of school and I went to our friends their daughter's basketball game I think she's in eighth grade and I'm sitting there and I have not sat in stands for very often and the parents are yelling at the kids like hey don't shoot that ball after they miss just be there for your kid the game is the hardest game in the world your son is going to fail. There is no way around it. If you your son plays in the big leagues, he's still going to fail and fail a lot. And with that, just be for be there for them and encourage them because ultimately when you're failing as often as you fail in, in our game, you need someone to encourage you and not get them in the car and say, How can you struck how can you swung at that pitch? They're all trying. There's a ton of pressure on them. There's pressure on the parents too. We get it, but don't put more pressure on the kid. There's there's already too much pressure. If if there's a local game that I have to go recruit during the season, I try my best to wear like a hooded sweatshirt that doesn't have my our, our school name on it. I try to look like somebody's older brother, dad, whatever, because when we walk in as coaches, it just tightens everybody up and. Obviously, at an event, I, I wear because there's 80 other schools there. But if I can go in disguise, I will try to because I want to see what they play like without the pressure. And I don't want to add that pressure. And if you're a parent, you shouldn't want to add that pressure either. Realize it's it's a really difficult game, and your son is trying his ass off. Awesome. Steve, I really appreciate your time. I wish you the best of luck this spring. I know you're going to do great, but thank you so much. Nope. Thank you for having me. And I, I saw your lineup coming up. You got, I, I was a nine hole hitter. You got a bunch of three hole hitters coming. <laughs> no, you're a three hole along with the rest of them. No, you got some big dogs coming. So it'll be fun to listen to. So I appreciate you guys having me. Thank you. Yeah.